Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Father, You tell us, in fact, through Your servant Isaiah, You said Your Word, which You send out, does not come back to You empty. And I pray, Father, that everything else will be set aside this morning and that Your Word would come to us, that we would hear Your Word and the truth contained here and that it would not come back to You empty. That it would grab hold of our hearts. Here, Father, at the absolute summit of all of the prophecy of Isaiah... The apex, Lord, you know that this is the peak that we have reached. And I pray, Father, for open ears and open hearts and spirits ready to receive. For all those who believe, may this increase our faith. For those who don't believe, may it yield a new and fresh faith today. And help us to see your servant Messiah in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to keep your finger in Isaiah 53 and turn over to Acts chapter 8 as we begin. Acts chapter 8.
come to the pinnacle of the prophecies of Isaiah, bringing the people to what God, by His Spirit, has been telling His prophet, I want to get my people to this point. Isaiah 52 and 53 is that point. There's a question here we have to answer, a question that must be asked as we open up this passage. Who's this talking about? Who is this servant? And it's a question that's been asked across the ages. Up until Jesus came, there there was no frame of reference for this servant. Nobody fit this prophecy. Who is this? We're told in Acts 8.27, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join the chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, which by the way means Philip knew Isaiah. Not the man, but the book. Familiar enough with the scriptures that he heard this this Ethiopian reading out loud and Philip went, Isaiah 53. I know where this is coming from. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he, the Ethiopian, said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He reads this aloud. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? The answer to that question, gang, brought the gospel to Ethiopia. One man on a chariot, met by one of the apostles, asks a simple question. Who is the servant of the Lord? And once he receives and understands the answer, goes back back to Ethiopia and the church explodes there. I tell you that just to say how important the answer to the question is. Who is this, he asked. Now, back in Isaiah 52 and 53, we have to recognize that by this time, Isaiah has already spoken of at least four other servants. Who is the servant of the Lord? Well, there are four options leading up to this. Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3, God calls Isaiah himself my servant. Oh, so it could be Isaiah. I mean, he was a prophet who went through a lot of suffering. He was rejected. He's the prophet, you Bible students know, who at the end of his life, the king, evil king Manasseh, we, by church tradition, believe that Isaiah was shoved into a hollow log and sawn in half. So, this is a guy who was sacrificed. Perhaps it's Isaiah, my servant. Isaiah 22, verse 20. He refers to my servant Eliakim. Eliakim. Okay, well, so there's another possibility of the servant of the Lord. Of course, Isaiah 37, verse 35, the Lord recalls my servant David. Oh, David. Well, he was a persecuted guy, right? Some of this could fit him. Spent a decade of his life running from Saul, trying to stay alive before ultimately he he did become king. Well, maybe that's what is being talked about with the servant of the Lord. And then in Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9, and this is the largely accepted view by many Jewish people today, we're told, You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Israel, 
not an individual, but in a collection, uh, people personify the servant of the Lord. So, Isaiah, Eliakim, we have David, and Israel. Four choices before we ever arrive at the servant's songs. Who is the servant of the Lord? Well, you probably know the servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 is none of the above. He is someone who did not exist at the time, who would not exist... Well, let me rephrase. He's someone who existed at the time, but not on planet Earth. Would not be seen for 700 years. One who would, in his birth, come into this world... I'm getting ahead of myself. Ancient Jewish scholars did not, listen, did not believe that the servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 was Israel. They didn't teach that. They taught and believed that this servant was Messiah. And Jesus hadn't come yet. They didn't have Jesus to look at. But they read the text and they understood very clearly this is talking about an individual. This is talking about one who would come and suffer. Later on, to try and figure out the difference here between a glorious Messiah and a suffering Messiah, they actually came up with two Messiahs. And thought, well, perhaps we have the glorious Messiah. He's Messiah ben David. Messiah, the son of David. And then we've got the suffering Messiah. Messiah ben Ephraim or Messiah ben Joseph. And they actually split it into two personalities to try and make this work. But the ancient scholars believed this was one Messiah. One and the same with all the other passages in Isaiah. All the other prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures that talked about the singular, unique Messiah of God. Mashiach, the anointed one. What's interesting is that now today, the Orthodox rabbis who take the Scriptures literally still believe this is talking about the Messiah. Liberal scholars and many Jewish people today believe that the servant is not singular, but is the personification of Israel. There's a whole Jewish theology that goes along with that. A belief that it is Israel who suffers for the sins of the Gentile world. That Israel actually as the chosen people are chosen to suffer. Now they are a people who have suffered, no question about it. But the theology goes, we as the Jewish people are chosen to suffer and pay for the sins of humanity. And so that's the burden that is on our back. The problem is you can't find that anywhere in Scripture. Hebrew Scripture. That theology does not exist. That God would choose a people and call upon them, sinners themselves, to be a sacrifice for the rest of the sinful world. It doesn't make sense. This servant song back in Isaiah 53 is so controversial that in the weekly synagogue readings, long about August every year, in the synagogues around the world, they are in the book of Isaiah. They get to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 12 on one, on one Saturday, one Shabbat. And the next week, they start up on Isaiah 54, verse 1. Skipping the whole section. A lot of the Jewish people don't even realize it's being skipped over. Because Jewish people, just like Christian people, have a tendency to sit in their synagogues like we can sit in our churches and just go, (laughs) you know, check out, make lunch plans, text someone across the room, whatever it takes. Why do they come up with this different theology? Why reject? Even if you don't believe Jesus is Messiah, why would the people of Israel reject that this is their Messiah. And I'll tell you, there's one singular reason for it. It's because Christians have traditionally claimed Isaiah 53 as ours. 
It's because we have, across history and across the past, taken Isaiah 53 and said, Look, your scriptures say this. Your scriptures talk about our Messiah. Now that might be okay as, as a proof, as, as a discussion point. That, that might be alright except for one problem. While the theology is good, the behavior toward Israel by the church has historically been bad. And no matter how good someone's theology is, if their behavior is bad, it's really hard to hear the truth, isn't it? Someone comes up to you and they're an absolute jerk, why would you want to listen to what they have to say? Rick, are you calling the church a jerk? No, I'm not. Actually, there have been many, many believers, followers of Jesus, down through the ages who have loved Israel, who have supported the Jewish people, and continue to do so. Many of you sit right here today. But traditionally, if you ask a Jew in Israel today, how do you feel about Islam versus how do you feel about the church, many of them, in spite of the terrorism of this generation, many will still say, historically, Muslims have treated us better than Christians. Well, where would they get that idea? You go back to 1096 A.D., right at the start of the First Crusade. As that crusade began, and by the way, there's a, there's a misnomer out there, a myth that the crusades were designed to destroy the Jewish people. They were not. The crusades were designed originally, and in the, in the calling of the crusades and the, and the writing about the crusades, designed to go back and to conquer militarily Palestine. And to push back against the Muslims who were pushing forward. And if you read the original documents, the Jews were not even mentioned. But here's what happened. A group of overzealous and misguided crusaders en route to Palestine began to persecute Jews across Europe. In fact, they were led by one Count Emicho. And Count Emicho was stirring them up with anti-Semitic teaching and wrong theology. And they led to the butchering, literally, of Jewish lives across the Rhineland burning synagogues, pillaging Jewish villages. And it was so bad that as the first crusade got underway, Jewish people began saying, we're aligning with the Muslims. Because these Christians are killing our people. Fifty years later, the same thing happened with the second crusade. Some misguided idiot crusaders started going after the Jews. Started saying, convert or die! Holding Jews over wells, giving them the opportunity, convert or we drop you into your death. Holding Jews at knife point, saying convert or we will kill you, which is why today many Jewish people do not like the word conversion. They called them the Christ killers. Because of you Jews that Jesus was, our Jesus was put on the cross because of you Jewish people. And that, that sick mentality and that attack against the people of Israel has caused a blight on the relationship between Jews and Christians that still exists today. Ask yourself, if you were a Jewish person watching the news and you saw some idiot in Seattle walking up and down the street holding up a a protest sign that said Israel is an apartheid state, what would you think about those American Christians and their attitude toward you, a Jew? Christians have traditionally not been the best representatives of Jesus. And I say that sorrowfully. And I say that owning it because I in my life have not always been the best representative of Jesus Christ. I want to be. Don't you? And yet, 
You ever find yourself blurting out something just dumb or doing something <laughs> foolish? You know, you honk at someone as they're cutting you off and you realize, you know, they're looking at you and you realize you got a big cross in your back window. <laughs> and so quickly you roll down your window, you know, hit the button, honk if you love Jesus, man, you know, trying to make it right. What is to be the Christian's response to the Jewish people? And I'm talking modern Israel today. Isaiah 62 verse 1 says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. And we're going to talk about that more in a few weeks. My response to Israel. But I often think of that quote many of you are familiar with. St. Francis of Assisi once said, Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Because our behavior is more important in reaching people for Jesus and in showing Jesus to this world than our theology is. Let me just say this to anyone, especially if you're not a Christian, or if you've been hurt or offended by someone who claims to be a Christian. Please don't measure Jesus by the rest of us. Don't measure Jesus by His followers. I am a poor representation of my Lord Jesus, hard as I try. I am an imperfect, flawed man. I am not. You know, years ago, and here's why we're going to take a while this morning, because I haven't even gotten to the first verse. (laughs) Years ago, when I was in college, uh, a pastor got up and preached a sermon on being a servant. And it moved me. It was powerful. Incredible sermon. And and I remember at the very end of it, after describing biblically what the servant of the Lord is like, and giving all these personal and intimate examples from his own life, and he gets down to the end and he says, and that, to the best of my understanding, is what it means to be a servant. And he sat down, and we were all just like, wow. And then I went back a few years later, and I listened to that teaching again. It was all about the pastor. It was not about Jesus. And I was so impressed when he was done with the sermon, I was so impressed with this particular pastor that I missed the whole point. That the servant is Jesus. Gang, measure Jesus by Jesus. Do not measure Jesus by anybody else. Consider what He did, what He taught, how He lived. Consider His nature, His character, His spirit. That's what Isaiah 52 and 53, that's what this fourth servant song is here to help us do, to consider Jesus Christ. And the truth is, this fourth servant song of Isaiah is about Jesus. It does give such graphic detail. It cannot possibly be Isaiah the prophet. It can't be Eliakim. It cannot be David. It can't even be the people of Israel. When you put it all together, there's only one person who fits the servant's songs. And that is Jesus. Only one, Messiah. In the 14th century, Rabbi Moshe Kohen Ibn Crispin... <laughs> Just say Kazuntite and we'll move on. Rabbi Moshe Cohen Ibn Crispin wrote the following. Now, this is a, a Jewish rabbi, did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, but listen to what he says about Isaiah 53. This prophecy was delivered by Isaiah at the divine command for the purpose of making known to us something about the nature of the future Messiah who is to come and deliver Israel. He said this in the 14th century, so he obviously missed the. Messiah had come. But he saw this in the writing. He says, In order that if anyone should arise claiming to be himself the Messiah, we may reflect and look to see whether we can observe in him any resemblance to the traits described right here. If there is any such resemblance, 
then we may believe that He is the Messiah, our righteousness, but if not, we cannot do so. I wish I had been there when He said that. I'd say, no. Listen, dude. Listen to your own words. What is the resemblance? What do we learn of Messiah here? Rabbi Moshe, not a Christian himself, rejected the non-literal view because he sees messianic traits in this passage. This is the servant who, as we've already heard, opens the eyes of the blind. This is the servant who raises up the tribes of Jacob and restores Israel. This is the servant who becomes himself a light to the nations of the entire world. This is the servant who gives his back to those who strike. This is the servant whose beard is plucked out of his face. This is the servant who is humiliated and spat upon, who is marred more than any man, who is pierced through for our transgressions, and like a lamb is led to the slaughter. And nobody fits that picture. No, not one, except for the perfect exception of Jesus. He fits every single prophecy of this servant of the Lord to a T. No other servant does. The Ethiopian asked the question, Who is this? And notice Philip answered. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He didn't have the Gospels. He didn't have the letters of Paul. He didn't have the book of Revelation. All he had before him was the scroll of Isaiah in the lap of an Ethiopian and he preached to him Jesus because this passage is about the servant Jesus Christ. It is his song that we sing this morning. Now we're going to walk this through in three phases just to get as far as verse 3 of chapter 53. And the first phase is the consideration phase. Consider the answer to the question, Who is this servant? Verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. You might note in your margin somewhere the phrase high, be high and lifted up. Is a very unique phrase in the Hebrew. It is Ram Venisa. Ram Venisa is the same phrase Isaiah used earlier in the book in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, where he writes, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, high and exalted, Ram Venisa, with the train of his robe filling the temple. What does this mean? It means, behold my servant, he is the glorified one. He is the one of Isaiah chapter 6. Yesterday, we had Hannah's boyfriend's family over for the day, and the donors, and um, which I think is a great last name. I've got to talk to him about our church building project. <laughs> I do. But they were over, and, and uh, Josiah's dad, Pete, and I were talking, and, and I, have, I have not gotten into Twitter. I don't tweet. I don't twit. I don't, you know, I've never done any of this stuff. <laughs> but he was talking about it. He's saying, you know, you ought to check this out, because there is a way to get information out. And he said, people in your fellowship might you know, use Twitter, and, and it might be a good way to get stuff out to them. And I, and I thought, ah, so I signed up. <laughs> and I spent some time last night just going through and, and I, I started just attaching uh, you know they, they call it following that's the only thing about Twitter I don't like is you're following people I don't want to follow anybody but Jesus but so I'm putting in some names of people and, um, and one of them is John Piper I put in his name he's got a thing called Desiring God so I thought I'll listen up to that I'll see what tweets come out of that and I realized last night right before bed why the Lord I believe ordained that Josiah's dad and I had this conversation. I think God wanted me to sign up for Twitter. I didn't think I would ever say that in here. (laughs) But here's why. I got a tweet right before I went to bed 
that reads as follows. John Piper wrote, Jesus is the fulfillment of both the majesty of Isaiah 6 and the misery of Isaiah 53. And I read that and went, wow. I'm like, God, that's what I'm talking about tomorrow. And he goes, uh-huh. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> the Messiah, the majestic one, who is high and lifted up. Be high and lifted up. That's why we sang that song this morning and why we continue to sing it over and over. And I'm thinking we've got to sing this about Jesus. Be high and lifted up. He is the one who is Ram Vanessa, high and lifted up. He is the one who was high and lifted up before He came. And then He came and suffered a great misery. But He would be high and lifted up after He said, It is finished. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He is the one high and lifted up. Let me just read this to you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which we find out is representative of the church. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His hair and his head were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. An awesome sight. A sight that dropped John to the floor. A sight that, as I said last week, I think took John out momentarily that he died. Seeing Jesus, because you can't see God and live. Right? Which is why we need to die to ourselves that we might live for Him. The glorified Christ. Glorified before He came. Glorified after He came. But it's the in-between that is so astonishing. Read on verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now, if you're reading the New American Standard Bible, you know that it says, just as many were astonished at you, my people. And I have in my Bible, lined through my people. Because it was not there in the original language. It was added by the translators, trying to make some sense of this, saying, oh, well, perhaps he's talking about... Israel and making a comparison to you know the devastation of Israel. Jesus was kind of like Israel suffering, so we'll throw my people in there because maybe it's Israel. I don't believe it is. I believe that what he's saying in the first line of verse 14, just as many people were astonished at you, he is talking to the servant in the second person. And then he turns around and speaks of him now to Israel. He speaks of the servant in the third person, In verse 14, continuing on, so his appearance was marred more than any man. Why is that important? Well, listen. It's not unusual for God to do this. He's already done it. Once in Isaiah, we'll see another example later on where he does it, but Isaiah 42, verse 20. In the King James it says, seeing many things, but you observe not. Opening the ears, but he hears not. And in that moment, God is talking to Israel. You don't see things. And then he talks about Israel, he doesn't hear things. So it's almost like an aside to Israel and then going back to talking about Israel, and that's what's happening here. 
He makes an aside to the servant, and then he talks about the servant. It's a comparative thing. Here's why this matters. The first line of verse 14 is the antithesis of verse 13. The first line. Verse 13 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you. It's a comparison. Just as as much as they were astonished with you, as much as you were devastated and they saw all that happened in the crucifixion, as low as you went, that's how high you will be exalted. In the opposite direction. That's how glorified you will be. And sometimes we do that. We make you know, comparisons. I can get this depressed, but I can get that happy. <laughs> and that's what he's pointing at here. Now keep that in mind. The height of his glorification would exceed the depth of the people's astonishment as they looked at this suffering servant. The word astonished there. Many were astonished with you is shamim in the Hebrew. And it literally means devastated. The people were devastated. Were they? Yes. In fact, twice we read in the Scriptures of the people of Israel, the Jewish people, devastated over seeing Jesus. Two times. The first time was in Luke chapter 23, verse 48, where we're told all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, that is the crucifixion, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. They were devastated. We talk about those Jewish people, those leaders, mostly calling, crucify Him, crucify Him. But we don't talk a lot about what was the impact on the people in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, when Jesus died on the cross, and those who saw it. How did they react? How did they feel? We know a Roman centurion said, Behold, this must have been the Son of God. How did the Jewish people there feel? Luke tells us, they returned to their places in Jerusalem just going, How can this be? Because gang, even though he was rejected, there were so many in Israel who hoped perhaps he might be the one. Who hoped, yes, this one, the words are all right, the things he says, he has healing power, perhaps he will be the Messiah. And then he's dead on the cross and it devastated them. That was the first time they were devastated seeing a crucified Jesus. When's the second time? Zechariah 12.10 They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. See, He just did it right there. He changed from talking about Himself in the first person to talking about Himself in the third person. They will look at Me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. At the cross, the Jewish people who saw what happened were devastated. At His return, the Jewish people believing in Jesus, seeing Him come on the clouds with glory, will mourn. They will be devastated yet again, recognizing the Savior. And so... Isaiah continues saying, High and lifted up, but many will be astonished at you. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. The Hebrew word marred there, mishkat, means disfigured, mutilated. Isaiah already told us that this servant of the Lord was going to have his beard plucked out. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 3. The gospel writers tell us that his face was brutally beaten. Blindfolded, they beat him about the face. And so brutal was 
the beating that Isaiah told us before it happened that he would be so marred, it would be like unlike any other son of man has ever been marred. Really? In other words, if you had known Jesus before his trials began on that night and saw him the next morning as they were leading him out to the cross, you might not have recognized him by his face. So brutalized was this servant of the Lord. And I've asked the question before, is that why Mary didn't recognize him in the garden? Is that why perhaps the men on the road to Emmaus, when they walked with Jesus, didn't know it was Jesus? Is that why the apostles had trouble seeing him, though he appeared before them there in the upper room? They had to know somehow in their heads, no one else could just appear before us, so it's got to be Jesus, but he doesn't look like him. Who is this? And Jesus said, See the nails in my hands? And remember in that moment, they recognized Him. The men on the road to Emmaus, when He broke the bread, they would have seen the nails in His hands. And in that moment, they recognized His face. But He was marred more than any man. Which means He was marred more than Ronald Popo. Maybe you read about Him, the homeless man along the Miami Causeway who was cannibalized a couple of weeks ago. Cops were called. They came upon the scene absolutely grotesque. The wickedness in our world, gang, is increasing. This is the third, the third report that I've read in this month about cannibalism in America. What? This doesn't, this doesn't happen in the America not, that I grew up in. The cops showed up, and this Ronald Papa, this homeless guy, was lying flat on his back while another guy was on top of him eating his face. Ronald Papo is alive. He's in the hospital. They say he will be permanently disfigured. He has no nose. He's missing an ear. And and chunks of his face are gone. That's awful. Jesus was marred more than that. If you're disgusted at the thought of this poor homeless guy being cannibalized, think about what Jesus looked like before he even was nailed to the cross. Marred in every way. He had to be. He had to be. It says in verse 15, Thus He will sprinkle many nations. Thus, because He was marred more than any man, He is now capable, He is now able to sprinkle many nations. What does that mean? This is not the sprinkling, as I originally thought, I thought, well, maybe it's talking about Yom Kippur. You know, that annual sacrifice. They would go in, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, or in the later the Jewish temple, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant as a, as a uh, picture of the cleansing that would take place. That's not what's being talked about. In fact, the word sprinkling here is used, it's a different word. And the word that's used here is, is used in the Levitical law talking about the sprinkling on an individual, on a person who has been cured of leprosy. This is so amazing to me. God so looked ahead that He planned something in the law for when it would take place 1,500 years later. He said, when a leper is healed of his leprosy. Lepers don't get healed of their leprosy, Lord. Well, Yeah, but when this happens, just in case someone just spontaneously heals, (laughs) then that leper is supposed to go before the priest. He's supposed to take an offering. There's an offering of two birds. And one bird would be slaughtered, and there's a whole prescription for that in Leviticus 14 that's fascinating. In fact, we did a whole Easter Sunday sermon, Resurrection Sunday sermon, on the two birds. One was sacrificed, and the blood mixed in, and was sprinkled on the person who was a former leper. And the other bird was set to fly free over the open field. 
which is a picture of life and resurrection. Anyway, here's the law. Leviticus 14.7, He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him now clean. You were a leper, you've been healed of leprosy, but now you're going to be sprinkled and become clean. It's a picture, by the way, of baptism. I believe. I have been healed. I have been given salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. It is grace that saves you, not works, so that no man can boast, right? But, in immediate response, I go into the waters of baptism as an outward show of what God has done spiritually, internally. And that's what was going on with the leper. He's already healed of his leprosy. But now, now you go to the priest and you get this blood sprinkled on you to become ceremonially clean. This law would gather dust on the Torah shelf until a leper would come up to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You remember what happened? Mark chapter 1, Jesus reached out. He touched the man first while he was still a leper and said, I am willing be clean. And then Jesus said in verse 44, and here's why He said it, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. God put this thing in the law that the leper, 1,500 years later, could use as a testimony of Jesus as the Messiah. That the people would start to understand And because of Isaiah 52, verse 15, the Jewish Talmud here, where it says He will sprinkle many nations, the Jewish Talmud calls Messiah Nagua. Nagua, which means leprous one. He would become the leprous one. And He would sprinkle me that my leprosy would be removed. And that's the point. The servant of the Lord would become shunned like a leper. And He would cleanse the nations of their leprosy by taking it on Himself by the sprinkling of His own blood. And so kings will shut their mouths on account of Him. For what they had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Even the rulers of the world will be silenced before Him. President Obama will finally have reason to bow down before another ruler. We heard the same description before in the second servant song. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 49.7, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now listen, I mean no offense, honestly, toward President Obama. I really think he's just trying to show some kind of respect. You can disagree with me, that's fine. But I do think he's trying to be respectful, and I think that's great. And you should be respectful, one ruler to another. But it's not going to just be a sign of respect. When the kings of earth see Jesus, they're going to fall flat on their faces in abject terror and humility at who he really is. And we will see this happen, gang. So we begin with the consideration phase. Consider who it is we're talking about. And this then goes into the confession phase. Second phase, the confession phase. The first three to four verses of chapter 53 are a confession. Listen to this. 
Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. It's a confession. A confession. Two questions are asked at the outset. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And they're great questions, but we have to ask something before we can even answer those. Who's confessing here? Who is making this confession that he was despised and we did not esteem him? Who's making the confession in the first place? Many Jewish commentators, going back to that Jewish theology that I told you before, that Israel is the suffering servant, the Jewish commentators put this on the Gentiles. They say it is the Gentile world who is asking who has believed our message, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, and they're the ones saying he was despised and we did not esteem him. We Gentiles did not esteem the Jewish world. That theology gang, though I understand where it comes from, is incorrect. And the Bible makes it clear. Note that it says, who has believed our message? Who's believed our message? Well, okay. Whose message is this? Whose message is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Don't say the church. Because the church started as a Jewish movement. The message is a Jewish message. The message began as a Jewish message. We extend, I mean, I I own the message myself now, the message of Jesus, the gospel, I own it, it's mine. (laughs) But it didn't start with me. And it didn't start with a Gentile. It started first and foremost with the Jewish people. John, who was a Jew himself, recognized this. He said in John 1.11, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Who has believed our message? The confession is, we haven't believed our message. It's our message, but we're having trouble even believing it ourselves. And then John gives us absolute proof that the confession of Isaiah 53, the first three verses, is Israel. Turning your Bibles over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. While you're turning there, listen, this is not a side note here. This is absolutely critical for understanding the servant song. That it is a Jewish message being confessed here. John 12.32 Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which He was to die. And then the crowd answered Him, We have heard out of the law that Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now see, already they're confused about the theology. Their theology was a glorious Messiah who would exist forever. They understood that this idea of being lifted up had to do with death. How can a Messiah who is going to live forever be lifted up to death? We don't get that. Who is this Son of Man who you say is going to die? It can't possibly be the Messiah, right? Verse 35, So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. He is not just being, you know, esoteric here. He's not being mysterious. He is using a language that would be known among the Jews of the Messiah Himself. Back in Isaiah chapter 2, do you remember? He said, 
to the people who are in darkness, a great light will be seen. Messiah, in Jewish thinking, was represented in Isaiah as a light. And so Jesus immediately responds saying, I am the light. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Here I am, the light Isaiah prophesied about, the light of the world, I am here before you. Believe in me now while I'm still here. Well, John writes, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and he hid themselves, he hid himself from them. Why? Well, though he had performed so many signs before him, yet they were not believing in him. Who has believed our message? They ask in Isaiah. They were not believing in him. And listen, John says, listen, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, He has hardened their heart, so that they could not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. And by the way, that is from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, the glorious Lord. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Is the same God is the same Jesus described in both those chapters. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Him who? Jesus. And John goes on and says, and listen to this Christians, nevertheless many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. How about you? Do you prefer the approval of men? Or do you seek the approval of God? Anyone who might think, as we open Isaiah 53, that this is a Gentile confession, remember, it was Jewish followers of Jesus Christ who recognized this in themselves. Jewish people who said, we haven't even believed our own message. By the way, to whom did Jesus first come? To the Jews. Don't miss that. The arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You Bible students from Wednesday know the arm of the Lord, the divine reach of God, is not an arm. It is Messiah. It speaks of the reach. It speaks of Jesus coming personified in Messiah. And He came through and He came to the Jewish people first. You remember the story. Jesus was out doing what Jesus does. And a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came running up to Him and fell at His feet. And we're told in Mark chapter 7, the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking, kept asking Him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And He was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Which is a harsh statement Unless you think about Reggie, you know, in my house, it is not right for Cheryl to make a nice meal and put it on the floor and let Reggie eat it first. You know, there's some leftover, there's something that falls off the table. Fine, you know. And that's the picture here. In fact, the word dogs in the Hebrew is not, is not a cruel, callous word. It's, it's more of a, an affectionate term of endearment, as though Jesus said, it's not right to take my kids' bread and, and toss it to the puppies. Okay? 
And the, the woman answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And let me just tell you, I'm okay with that. Your pastor, I'm a dog under the table lick, licking up every crumb I can get that Israel didn't want. I'll take it. Graft me in. I'm there. Sounds good to me. I want to be part of this. And Jesus marveled at her faith and He healed the little girl. But gang, He made it absolutely clear He came first to the children of Israel. And then, after their rejection, He would be going out to the Gentile world. And He's telling the woman, you know you're getting the cart before the horse. right? i got to give Israel first, first shot here. You'll have your chance. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, in the first great commission, when He sent His apostles out, He said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. Not yet. Go to Israel. The point is this. The arm of the Lord gang was extended first to Israel. As Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, you need to slap someone next to you if they're looking drowsy. Okay. Dial in. If you're finding yourself going, it's a lot of theology, just stay with me. Gentiles, do not think you're off the hook. The confession must be made by us as well. What do you mean, Rick? Who has believed our message? Let me ask you the question. Do you believe the message of the Gospel? I have known Christians who go out and invite people to church and who who go out and declare that they're Christians and they wear all the right t-shirts. And you know what? They're not. They're not believers. They don't believe the message because their lives do not evidence the life of someone who believes that Jesus is Lord. Who has believed our message? It is our message. The Great Commission is ours to send out, but it does you no good and it does nobody else any good if you don't believe it. Do you believe it? Verse 2 says, He grew up before Him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. Again, this is Israel speaking, the Jewish people, and you almost hear a hint of, of excuse here. We didn't know it was Him. We didn't get it. Why not? Two reasons. A geological reason and a theological reason. They did not understand that this was Messiah when they saw Jesus. The geological reason. He came when the land was dry. and Rocky and barren. The Hebrew word there that is translated in verse 2, like a root out of parched ground. The phrase parched ground is ma'aretz zayah. Ma'aretz Zion, dry land, parched ground. This is the root, by the way. Zion is the root of, any guesses? Zion. Zion. Zion, the name that is given Israel overall, the name that is given the capital city of Jerusalem. Zion. My people, Zion. Even Ahmadinejad recognizes that. He calls them the Zionist regime. Okay, so they're Zionists. <laughs> But Zion, again, dry ground. Jerusalem, the city whose greatness is not measured by its geological landscape, its greatness is measured by the one who claims it as his own. God says, Jerusalem, that's my city. And that's what makes Jerusalem great. By the way, when God claims you as his own, that's what makes you great. Not anything that you do or think you can accomplish. But think about this. When Jesus showed up on the scene, Zion was parched. 
It was dry ground. The glory days of the Davidic dynasty were long since gone. Israel having been wiped out, taken into Babylonian captivity, and then they come limping back into the land and they start to rebuild and, and, and it never comes back. They never have the glory. They never have the strength. They never have the kings. They, they become a pawn in between battles all around the Middle East for four to five hundred years. The land was dry, man. And Herod the Great was systematically murdering anyone who would try to rise up and take the throne, including kids under the age of two for fear that one of them might be this prophesied Messiah. Furthermore, the living waters of the spirit of prophecy had gone silent. And so the land was dry. It had been 400 years since a prophet had spoken to Israel. And the Jewish people were starting to get a little thirsty. Where is this? Where is the Lord? Where is His Spirit? The ground gang was dry and cracked, and it was from this dry ground that Messiah sprang up. As weird as trees growing out of rocks over here by the bridge. Weirder than that, walking through a desolate wilderness with cracked dry land and finding running across a root that is fresh and green and growing. That's what happened. And so Israel in this confession is saying, how were we to know? I mean, things were bad here. Things were dry. Listen, Christians, listen closely. Do not limit God to only working when the waters are flowing in your life. Because He works in the dry ground. When you think you got nothing left, when you think you're about as far from spiritual revival as a person can be, God springs up. And we got a confusion that I think goes on sometimes spiritually. We think, i got to be so with it and so engaged and so just overwhelmed with the Spirit for His Spirit to work. No, God doesn't need you to do anything for His Spirit to work. Because it's His Spirit that does the work. And I recall Him being a God who knows how to make water gush out of a rock in the desert. So if you feel like a rock in the desert this morning, guess what? He may just be about ready to gush. Or He might quietly, simply in your life, spring up. That's what He does. The Jewish people missed it. The ground was so dry, they said, how could we have known a geological reason, a theological reason? They said, and besides the fact, He didn't look like Messiah. There's nothing about Him. No stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. And Nathaniel said in John 1.46, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That is not a messianic city. Jerusalem. Tell me Messiah is coming out of Jerusalem. Zion. But Nazareth? That would be like saying the Messiah was coming out of Tacoma. <laughs> and I love, what, I love what Philip said to him. Same Philip, by the way, who spoke to the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip the evangelist. He's telling everybody about Jesus. What does he do? Well, of course things, the Messiah can come out of Nazareth. Let me give you the biblical and scriptural reason for that. And started, No, he didn't do that. He just said, come see. Come see. I'm not going to give you all kinds of messianic debate. You know how messianic debates can get messy. So just, just say, come see Jesus. Come check Him out. John 7.41 tells us that others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from the Galilee, is He? It's not where Jesus, it's not where the Messiah comes from. But when the common people saw Jesus, when they began to hear him teach, 
when they began to see his compassion and his tenderness, commoners began to say, wow, this guy could be. Until, of course, he was crucified, and then for three days nobody understood. But there was nothing about him up front. Nothing. He'd walk down the street, you wouldn't know he was Messiah until you got into a relationship and started to see that this guy ticks differently than anybody I've ever known. There was a problem in Israel among the theologians, this theological problem. Why did the leadership of Israel miss it? Listen, the ground was dry, spiritually dry, but theologically it was rocking. (laughs) Theologically, Judaism was at an all-time high. The synagogue system was spread throughout the land, probably begun by Ezra when they first came back from captivity, planting synagogues everywhere, teaching, scholarship, study. Man, the Jews were into it. They were an intelligent people and they were a studied people. And there were two main rabbinical schools of thought that were hotly debated, the Shammai school and the Hillel school. And so proudly they had their doctrine down. And yet Jesus didn't match the expectations of their well-developed theology. I shared earlier, and you all know this, we have a statement of faith for the Bridge Christian Fellowship. It's tacked on at the very end of our um, bylaws. Legally, we're supposed to have some kind of statement of faith that says this is what we believe. And we don't have it out for people to see. Why? (laughs) Because this is our statement of faith. And if our statement of faith, the little piece of paper that has several bullet points on it, doesn't align with this, we change the little statement of faith. This is the living word. Our statement of faith is a piece of paper. Alright? And so we believe and we lean on and we trust the Word of God. And if our expectations don't match up with what the Word tells us about Messiah, we change our expectations. But the Jewish leaders didn't. The Jewish leaders said, this guy doesn't fit our theology. He doesn't fit our scholarship. There's nothing special about him. My scholarship says he's going to be glorious. He doesn't fit. What happens, brothers and sisters in Christ, what happens when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations or your traditions? What happens when the Messiah of Scripture does not fit the creed with which you were raised or brought up or or came to know the Lord in the first place? What if you're going to a church and suddenly the pastor starts saying stuff about Jesus and you're going, what? Okay, okay, I see that, but what? (laughs) What do you do? What happens when Jesus is no longer relevant in today's culturally savvy denominations? Where are you going to go? Are you going to go with your theology or are you going to go with Jesus Christ? All that to say, is it possible, we see this in Israel, is it possible among us to have our doctrine down and still miss Jesus? Absolutely. And sadly, Christians do it all the time. May we never do that. Jesus talking to the church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, said, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You're getting out of relationship. You're so bound to your doctrine that you're starting to lose relationship with me. Don't do it. 
That's why Israel missed him in the first place. The geology, the theology, it just didn't line up. So how do we maintain doctrinal soundness without missing Messiah? Now listen, we're on the 10-yard line, so watch this. How do we maintain doctrinal soundness? Because we need to be biblically literate people. And we need to be doctrinally sound. How do we maintain that without somehow missing the Messiah? We get down to the roots. You've got to get down to His roots. He was like a root out of parched ground. Does that ring a bell? He's like a root out of parched ground. Isaiah already said in Isaiah 11 verse 1, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. My friends, listen. These things, none of them describe physical attributes. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying Messiah throughout Scripture is not described physically, ever, with one possible little exception, and that's because we know He had a beard because it was plucked out. It's the only physical description we have of Jesus in the Bible. Every other description has to do with His nature, His character, His spirit. Jesus says you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it is these that testify about Me. It's not a book that you read so you can have a better life. It is a book that describes me to you. My spirit. Get that. My spirit. Not my face. Not my body, my shoulders, my gait. Not my hair color. Not my beard, my nose, my ears. It describes who I am. Who I am. The people of Israel, they were looking for a scriptural proof of this glorious King Messiah riding on a horse, coming with the crown, the whole nine yards. And Jesus said, that's why you miss me. Because you're looking for a physical representation of Messiah and you miss spiritually who I am. The Bible tells us the testimony of Jesus is the true spirit of prophecy. And we've got to be aware of that. We get down to the root of who Jesus is. Precious family, let me put it to you this way. As followers of Jesus, are we supposed to look like Christians or are we supposed to be Christians? You can have all the t-shirts with all the logos you want and miss it. It's a Lakers shirt. But what if, what if I had a little, you know, a nice polo shirt with a cross on it? They're out there. Mm-hmm. Or a cool t-shirt that says, Disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> you know? Or a hat with a cross. Or, or wearing the cross around my neck. Hey, that's all fine. But gang, that is not what defines you as a Christian. It's not what shows Christ to the world. Your character. Your nature. Your love. The Crusaders had crosses on their shields. And absolutely misrepresented Jesus. And the Jewish people said, we'll have none of your Isaiah 53. And that's what happens when theology gang takes precedence over spirituality. When the flesh supersedes the Spirit. We are called to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things you can see in Jesus the Messiah. Spiritual attributes. Spiritual attributes, along with wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Spiritual attributes. We've got to be spiritually minded. Verse 3. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Victor Buchsbazen, himself a Jew who gave his life to Christ, said the following, A Messiah without earthly splendor, humble and humiliated, who is tormented and dies on a shameful cross as a vicarious and shameful sacrifice for the redemption of Israel and mankind, (laughs) he has always been and still remains offensive to Jewish thinking. The cross is offensive. It's offensive. That's not our Messiah. That loser on the cross... That unrecognizable brute cannot possibly be our Messiah. But gang, it was the Hebrew Scriptures, the Bible of the Jewish people that proclaimed this is exactly what would happen in the first place. That he would be despised, forsaken, an offense, and not esteemed. Here's the last thing. Number three, we come into, we enter into, and we'll spill into next week, the contraction phase. Consideration the confession phase, and number three, the contraction phase. And if you heard nothing else, you got to hear this. Despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sorrows and grief. That will be repeated again in the, in the fourth verse. A man of sorrows. Makab. In the Hebrew, makab. And it speaks, listen, it speaks of emotional and physical pain. If you, this morning... In your life, deal with or face emotional or physical pain. Guess what? Jesus gets it. He was a man of grief. Emotional pain. Man of sorrows. Man of grief. Koli in the, in the Greek. Or in the Hebrew, sorry. Koli in the Hebrew, which means literally disease. Disease. He's a man of emotional pain and acquainted with disease. Wait a minute. When did I ever see Jesus sick? I've read the Gospels. I've heard the stories. We have no single story of Messiah, of Jesus, with a cough or a snivel or a fever. We never hear about Jesus going, guys, go on without me. I got a migraine. That Wait a minute. Okay, I'm good. Let's go. We don't hear about that. They said to him, physician, heal thyself. He didn't have to because we never saw Jesus as sick. I actually read com- one commentator said because Jesus was so perfect, he never did get sick. No way. Of course he got sick. He had to. He was a human being. Oh, but he's so perfect. That, no, I'm sure he got sick, but we never read about that. So explain to me how this makes sense that he was a man who was uh, of, of an emotional pain and acquainted with disease. And here's where it all comes together. This is why this is the pinnacle of all the prophecies right here this morning. As we saw in the allusion to sprinkling for the cleansing of leprosy, upon coming to the earth, Jesus, who is this suffering servant of Isaiah, contracted the worst disease ever to plague mankind. He contracted it. He is a man of disease. Nagua, the leprous one. Because Jesus took the disease, your disease, my disease, and contracted it on Himself. Look back at Isaiah chapter 1. This is where the prophet began his prophecy. Isaiah 1 verse 2. Listen to this. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks. 
sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Who's he talking about? Israel. Easy answer. I mean, you know, easy answer. Israel. In fact, pretty much in church, you can either say Israel and Jesus, you're going to be right 50% of the time. (laughs) Sons I have reared up and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion, let's be clear, the daughter of Zion, that is the Jewish people, are left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. And you know what? If you just took that and put it in the hands of an anti-Semitic preacher, you could say, look at sin-sick Israel. They are the problem, not the solution. This is what you've got to get here. As Israel makes this confession in the first three verses of the servant's song, understand we live in a sin-sick world, a world diseased by sin, and Israel is the representative of that. It's not as the Jewish people thought that perhaps Israel was the suffering servant representing this messianic thing. No, Israel's not the suffering servant. Israel is the sinful picture of all humanity. And I say that as one who has come out of deep depravity. I say that as one who respects Israel. You know, I don't don't get it. I don't know why people look at the Jewish people and say, they're all to blame. They're the Christ killers. No, we're the Christ killers. It was our sin for which Jesus came and died. Israel as a people simply represented what was going on in the whole rest of the world, and that is depravity and disease and sickness and illness. They do not represent the suffering servant, quite the opposite. They represent a sin-sick world in desperate need of a Savior. And that's where we are. Israel represents my bruises. Israel represents my welts, my raw wounds. I should understand the Jewish people more than anyone else on the earth because where they are is where I have been. And without Jesus, it's where I would be. These wounds not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's why the servant had to suffer. That's why verse 4 of Isaiah 53 begins, Surely our sickness He Himself bore and our pains He carried. Amen.